Joseph D'Angelo is facing 13 homicide charges and 13 charges of kidnap with intent to rob in connection with the Golden State Killer crime spree. While law enforcement believes him to be responsible for the many rapes attributed to the East Area Rapist Spree, due to the statute of limitations, they cannot file rape charges. At the time of this recording, Joseph D'Angelo has not yet entered a plea and is awaiting trial. This case is why we lock our doors at night. Attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer. We're here with our partner in all things Golden State Killer, Todd Lindsay. Welcome back, Todd. Todd, thanks for having me. So we wanted to take this time to do a bit of an overview, right? Our first five uh, TV episodes covered a lot of ground and with law enforcement identifying Joseph James D'Angelo as their suspect in the Golden State Killer crime spree, we were able to see where we got it right and where we got it wrong. So let's go through some of those things. The fact that the Golden State Killer suspect was a police officer. I never suspected that. Really? Um, yeah. I, again, we've talked about this. Uh, people say that a lot, especially on like message boards and social media, you know, about unsolved cases. There's no way somebody could get away with that for so long if they weren't a cop. And then it never turns out to be a cop <laughs> when it's solved. So, yeah, I wasn't thinking that way. I was definitely thinking military background. Yep, which but, Joseph James D'Angelo has. But uh, not a police officer during the crimes. I I didn't see that one coming. I have to be honest. While we were studying the East Area Rapist Crime Spree, I didn't think the man had a full-time job yeah. anywhere. <laughs> you know, there was so much prowling, so much burglary, so much everything. So even when people said, oh, he's in the military, I was like, I don't see how he has the time. Well, when's exactly. he going to sleep? When's he going to sleep? When's yeah. he going to eat? I mean, he's, it, it literally seemed like he'd have to be awake around the clock and it turns out he probably was somebody came up with the idea that he maybe he was um you know not necessarily wealthy but had you know access to money so he didn't have to work and he had all this time and now we know that he had a full-time job so i guess he never slept he never slept and yeah. we also talked about um you know maybe being a day worker in construction or something right. so, so it's easy to pick up a, a shift here or a shift there and nobody right. would thinking that no employer was like counting on him from day to day. But, you know, with Joseph James D'Angelo being identified, we do know that he was working a full-time job 40 hours a week per Chief Willett, never was tired, never called in. So, yeah, how how Joseph James D'Angelo would have done that and the East Area rapist crime spree, I still can't wrap my head around. Well, talking to the neighbors, I think we've kind of understood that he didn't sleep a lot, and he'd be up at two in the morning in his backyard. But the screaming. Jane Carson attack was at six in the morning. So yeah, the, you know, there's been attacks that were at seven p.m. You know, with victim ten, right, and then at six a.m. with victim five, and so he's spending an awful lot of time. I mean, look, maybe, you know, maybe there's different shifts, right? There's a crime shift and maybe that only lasted five hours or six hours. And sometimes he did it from 6 p.m. to midnight and maybe sometimes from 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. Who knows? But it must have taken some serious coordination to pull that off. I agree. And we know, take the Jane Carson uh, attack, for example, he waited for the husband to leave. So he must have watch the house previously to know what time the husband leaves. So then when he decides, okay, this is the morning I'm going to attack, 
he gets up really early and then waits for the husband to leave and breaks in. But you're right. I mean, he had to do the surveillance. He had to do the prowling. And that took a lot of time. And he obviously didn't sleep a lot. Yeah. But even in that case, if Joseph James D'Angelo is the East Area rapist, he's then leaving that victim number five's house, Jane's. And I mean, he can't make it home or to a shift till probably 8 a.m. Right. He's clearly going straight to work, I would think. Uh, it's well, or, really... or it's an off day and he's going home and oh, maybe his wife is a possible. late sleeper or right. leaves early for her job or studies or who knows. But right. yeah, again, lots of coordination. Yeah, still very hard to wrap your head around. And we know that they were sleeping in separate bedrooms, at least for some of the marriage. Joseph D'Angelo and, and his, 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 his wife, wife at the time, right? And so in Auburn, yeah, in Auburn. So he must have been, you know, saying good night, going to his bedroom and then immediately out the window to spend most of the night prowling and uh, attacking. It's uh, it's unbelievable that he had the time and energy to do that. Uh, but clearly that's what he did. It'll be interesting if that comes up in trial. Right. I mean, if I'm a defense attorney, I go, it's not possible. Right. 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 Um, all right. Moving on to the next bit of evidence that. We spend a lot of time talking about, and particularly kind of Paul Holes was, you know, leading the charge on this one, which is the quote-unquote homework evidence. It's the um, kind of map drawing of kind of a development and uh, some scribbling on the back that was found not at a, at, at an East Area Rapist but near one where they believe the dog hounds kind of traced the East Area Rapist and then all of a sudden the trace uh, stops, assuming that maybe the East Area Rapist got into a car or some kind of vehicle and right. was able to leave that area. And near that spot, this evidence was found. Exactly. Uh, along the old rail- railroad tracks that ran behind uh, the neighborhood where he had a couple different attacks. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the theory was that he had dropped that somehow. And they spent a lot of time on that. And we still don't know if that was really his or not now. Yeah, we don't know that, right? I mean, there's been no evidence. You know, I know Paul Holes for a while while looking at it thought this must mean he's in construction and not just blue collar, but like white collar, maybe architect or developer or Mm -hmm. something like that. And obviously now with Joseph James D'Angelo being identified by law enforcement, he does not have that background that matches what was originally thought. That might be a real neighborhood that he drew just to remember, and we just can't match it. Um, or it could not be his. Or it could not be his. What's your guess, Todd? I think I still think it's his. I mean, there's certain things about it. The word punishment written as hard as you possibly can just <laughs> sounds like him. Um, <laughs> even the the elementary school paper that was on... One of the notes where he wrote about, uh, do you remember the subject of that? Was it Custer? It was Custer. That's right. But then there was another paper that he wrote uh, that was included in that notebook about how much he hated his teacher. Do you remember reading that one? And that sounds like him. It sounds like somebody who's angry from a young age. So, um, yeah, I still, if I had to choose, I I still say that it was probably his. I mean, they found it right away. They found it on the escape route that he took. Um, like you mentioned, the bloodhounds followed his scent. So, yeah. And this the whole neighborhood drawing is so suspicious because we know that he picked the neighborhoods instead of victims. Uh, he would find a neighborhood that he liked and then find victims in that neighborhood. So it sounds like him, but hopefully we'll they'll figure it out at some point. And it could also be, I mean, the Golden State Killer was known to 
try and mislead, right? He would maybe steal something from one place and leave it at another place. So it could be his planted. It could have been that he threw it there for a purpose, him being the East Area Rapist. So, yeah, I don't know if we'll ever know. It just seems like uh, if that was somebody's notebook, they might have seen, you know, it was in... News articles. It's been in LA Magazine. It's it was uh, on our show. It just seems like somebody would have recognized that and said, "Hey, uh, that was my notebook that went missing." <laughs> um, and so uh, maybe that will happen. It just seems like they could compare the handwriting samples from D'Angelo and the notepad and, yeah. and see if it's... they probably have just bigger fish fish to fry right now. I'm sure that I, yeah, figuring well, out if that's his is so far down the list. Well, we do know that they took writing samples from the house with the purpose of trying to match handwriting so maybe well if you can match the handwriting to that notebook then you can you can say he's in the neighborhood the night of the attack so i feel like we'll find that out at trial yeah (laughs) it's not something they'll share before then (laughs) now some folks thought he might work in the medical field yeah that was a big thing russ owis that was one of his theories and it was it had a lot of um you know uh facts to back it up, it seemed like a lot of the victims were in the medical field and they thought maybe he was seeing these victims at a hospital or somewhere and then following them home. But we know now that wasn't true. Just so happened that uh, a certain percentage of the houses that he attacked had uh, people who worked in the medical industry. And I think it was even Eric Hutchcraft who had said at the beginning, well, look, at that time, the medical industry, California, was booming. So the fact that the serial rapists attacked kind of white middle class homes would just by definition mean that there is a good percentage of people who work in the medical field, nurses and doctors that would exactly. be living there. So, yeah, that was coincidence. But, you know, it's just a good example of you got to look at all these things. You know, if you have uh, you don't have a suspect, you got to try every avenue of investigation to see what you can find. So, um and they definitely did that. There were a lot of theories before the arrest. And some of those theories and a couple of composite sketches came from the Katie and Brian Maggiore double homicide, which Golden State Killer suspect Joseph James D'Angelo has been charged with committing. What we got right and what we missed is next. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. spent a lot of time on the majorities and that attack. And we also interviewed Carl Knowles, who at the time was even interviewed on local news, which we showed archival-wise in the show, where he believes he saw the attacker. He saw the people who killed the majorities, and he helped create a composite. Mm-hmm. The composite did not have a mustache. It didn't. You know, the sun had already gone down, we, so we know it was nighttime. We went to that site and there wasn't a spot or a streetlight right over that. Yeah. So maybe, and and he had a blonde mustache, so maybe he just yeah. didn't see it. And, uh, you know, we're talking a matter of seconds. But you had also had a conversation with Ken Clark 
obviously before the arrest, but where he had said that he went through some of those old files and that he believes that maybe Carl remembers differently because there was another composite as part of that file. Yeah, I mean, it was 40 years, so he had a hard time remembering exactly what the person looked like when we interviewed him. Uh, He definitely saw the East Area Rapist. I think there's no doubt about that. He heard the gunshots. He heard the guy climb the fence. And the guy ran down right in front of his house and stopped when he saw Carl. And they locked eyes for a second. And then he ran back the other way. So I I always felt he definitely saw the guy. But, I mean, I think it kind of goes to we now know that eyewitnesses sometimes you know, your memory can play tricks on you. And so they don't remember it exactly how it happened. Right. But not knowing what we know about the person that law enforcement believed to had been there that night, to Mm -hmm. have been the shooter, and knowing that he had a mustache at that time, are we convinced that Carl Nilsch actually saw the East Area Rapist? I mean, could it be that some other kid just was like, oh, man, this is the wrong play, wrong time, I'm running. Like, if you were the East Area Rapist and you were just seen by the majorities, he, the East Area Rapist, had no qualms about killing them, about walking out after mm-hmm. Katie and shooting her. All of a sudden, you come around and there's this 17-year-old, stand- I think he was even younger than that. I, I think he was 17, I think okay. you're right. Yeah. 17-year-old standing there looking at you and you lock eyes. Why not shoot him? Why are you running away from this man if he's seeing you? My guess is that they were out on the street. The Majoris were murdered in a backyard, so it offered some privacy uh, and lack of eyewitnesses, although there was a young man who watched the entire murder from uh, the upstairs bedroom window. Uh, Yeah, so I think maybe, you know, shooting, he's just shot two people. He's jumped the fence. He's running down the street. To shoot another guy on the street, I, I just think maybe he decided that's not a great idea. I mean, that's the that's the only thing I can think of. Do you think the Carl Nolsch composite might hurt the prosecution's case with the majorities? Wow. Um, it's a hard question to answer. I mean, I guess that's a possibility. Again, I'd go back to um, we now know that eyewitness testimony can be flawed. And, you know, Asking somebody to remember what they saw over 40 years ago, it's it's a tough thing for anybody. Sure. I mean, there's a reason that a lot of police officers say, you know, the eyewitness is the last thing you want to rely on to solve a case. Right. You know, and when you look at these composites over the years, you understand why so few of them hit the mark. But from the majority case, we got the one composite with a mustache. Yes. So I think somebody did see him and got a good look at him and remembered it well. I think we can give Carl the benefit of a doubt. Just, you know, it's dark. He's not expecting to have to identify a murderer. You know, this guy runs over. So uh, it just probably happened so fast. And I'm sure he did the best he could. He possibly just, you know, misremembered it or didn't get a good look at him. So he described what he saw and it just happened to not have the mustache and not really resemble, you know, D'Angelo. Very well. But then there's another composite where somebody saw the suspect running down the street a block or two away from the murder. And and that has a a definite resemblance to D'Angelo. I think also, um, since we're speaking about composites, I think it's prudent to also bring up uh, Rodney Miller's composite. We, We told his story in our episode, too. And he came very close to the East Area Rapist. He did. Also no mustache. Also no mustache. <laughs> and now he says that he, again, he's chasing him. So he's looking at the back of him. But then he decides to cut him off. Uh, the man who was in his yard 
was jumping fences. He went out through two houses and onto the sidewalk and thought that he would come out that way. And sure enough, he did. So he, he cut him off and the suspect was right under a street light. You know, he was running, but he still, he said, I got a good look at him when he went under the street light. And, um, yeah, there's still no mustache. Uh, you know, maybe that blonde mustache just kind of blended in. I, yeah. I don't know. Again, it just goes back to uh, you're in a really tense situation. I mean, Rodney is shot seconds later. So uh, I'm sure they didn't take a composite uh, until after he underwent the operation. Uh, I know he lost a, a bunch of his intestines. He almost yeah. died. Yeah. Um, he was lucky to live. So uh, maybe just the traumatic experience and he had a hard time remembering what the guy looked like. Some other thought. And again, I'm I'm female. But like, could someone shave a mustache and grow it back over the course of a couple of days? Like if let's say, you know, D'Angelo being identified by law enforcement as the East Area Rapist, if he's on a shift and he knows, you know, there's like three days he won't have to go to work. Hmm. Right. Do, can you... Three days isn't long enough. No. Being Italian and being able to speak to a lot of my relatives <laughs> who are able to grow a mustache quickly, they still couldn't do it in three days. They're a good stubble. Yeah. They get a pretty yeah. good stubble, but you, it, I mean, I feel like you need at least... You'd have about what I have like now. Two, three, even after two, three weeks, it's still... It's, I, it's I, like, oh, you're growing a mustache. Right. I, I think three weeks I could have a mustache. In two weeks I could... Almost have a mustache, and I, but I think that's yeah the shortest time. Because I married joke, I can never have a mustache. So <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Your stubble comes in hours. So I'm like, man, Five if, you, if, shadow, if yeah. you keep this going, you'll have a full beard by tomorrow morning. Okay, so so yeah, I mean, again, with Chief Willing describing Joe D'Angelo in Auburn during the time of the East Area Rapist as having had a mustache. At all times, really, as far as he can remember, he never right. remembers him without a mustache. I do think that then that comes into play with the East Area Rapist composites. And I mean, if I'm a defense attorney, I'm looking at that. Definitely. Sure. And that might help uh, in the cases where there's no DNA evidence. I, I don't know how that helps when there is DNA evidence. Right. Well, yeah. yes, that's a whole other story. <laughs> OK, so I think another thing we talked about a lot is why did he stop in Northern California? And obviously, nobody really knew. There were a lot of theories. Some of it was because he was spooked by the aborted Danville attack where he was almost, you know, got into a confrontation with one of the victims. But I do think that most people, including the profiler, said it must have been a major life event. And sure enough, there was one. He got fired. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't just, you know, again, Joseph James D'Angelo being the suspected East Area rapist here. It wasn't just that he was fired. It's that, like, he was fired from being a law enforcement officer and his entire life up until that point was military and law enforcement. Yep. And there was an authority that came with that and a, and a built in respect that the community gave you at that time right. in the 70s of being in law enforcement. So it wasn't just that he lost a job. It's like he lost an identity. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I think uh, the fact that he lost that built in respect probably really was a huge blow to his ego. Mm. And yeah, I shouldn't say just fired. He was arrested for shoplifting. And uh, I'm sure that was very traumatic. We know he fought like hell to get out of there. Yeah. From what I w read, one of the guys working in the store was a high school wrestler <laughs> who, who really gave him, managed to hold him down. And we know D'Angelo was very strong. Uh, even today. You know, they ended he, up tying him to a chair. Yeah. <laughs> and then he started crying from what I read. So, um, 
you could tell he was, that probably really freaked him out. He probably thought at that time that they were going to identify him as the East Area Rapist. I'm sure he was really paranoid about that fact. So, uh, yeah, couple that with the fact that he was almost caught in the Danville attack. I mean, the guy that he came up against uh, in his house was uh, much bigger than him. So I think those two things could be a factor. Yeah, but it didn't seem like, I mean, you have to abort a Danville attack. And again, East Area Rapist, if he is Joseph James D'Angelo, D'Angelo just goes and buys, not buys, steals, you know, a hammer and dog repellent. Like, it was like, okay, I'm going to get ready for my next attack. It right. did, I wonder if that arrest had not taken place, would the East Area Rapist have stopped? You know what I mean? Like You mean in Northern California? In Northern California. Yeah, that's a good question. And well, let's talk about the hammer for a second. I mean, I think that shows premeditation. He wants to kill a victim. Potentially. But we also know that often he was so good at breaking in where he'd put a little something against the glass and then with a tap on it, it would shatter a little hole that he could go and like, you know, open up. So, you know, yes, obviously, you know, we've all seen enough serial killer movies to go with like a hammer means he's going to bash someone's head in. Right. And Um, bludgeoning was besides the victims that he shot, bludgeoning was his choice of. uh, Right of how to murder somebody. So I think the fact that he stole the hammer, he really didn't want that hammer to be traced back to him. Right. And if you're just using it to break into a house, I mean, I, I don't think you have to be as careful. I think he was really like, if I... But the hammer it, might have been second. It's really that dog repellent. Well, the, we and we know he must have been using dog repellent now. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. So again, he's worried... That if he leaves the hammer or the dog repellent behind, it can be traced to him. And I think that was his reasoning to steal it. Although, talking to you, we know there were no cameras in that store in 1978. 79. 79. If he paid cash, there'd be no link to him whatsoever, as long as he's not walking around with the receipt in his pocket. And I'm also, why, like, it was pretty ballsy, in a sense, to go to Citrus Heights, which was like... You know, there were four East Area rapist attacks in Citrus Heights, I think, right? So it's like, you know, you're going back to the scene of the crime. Now, I do think, you know, obviously Sacramento Sheriff's deputies came to the shoplifting thing and and arrested him and gave him a citation. And he never went down to the jail, as far as we know, because it was, you know, a minor, quote unquote, offense. Right. And sometimes people go, why did Sacramento Sheriff's Department put it together then? I do think it's 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 worth noting, though, that this is July 79. And again, it's a year and a half because it's really the majority's happened February 78. 78 right. So that's, that's literally like 18 months later, really since his last kind of... Right. Um, Plus, they weren't killed with the hammer. They were shot. Right. So why would you ever put that together? He hasn't bludgeoned anybody yet. Right. So, But it's also, this isn't at the at the height of the East Area Rapist True. terror. True. It's, it's been 18 months since the last attack. Right. And he has moved to east, east of Sacramento, yeah. and then he's moved south of Sacramento. So, yeah, I agree with so you. They don't th- because we even talked to Larry Crompton, right? And I feel like everybody thought that the East Area Rapist moved. moved. Yeah. Crompton, you know, because he was stealing weird things like, you know, a lamp and stuff that you would want, a set of dishes yeah. um, and stuff that you would want to set up a new house, which is completely logical. And again, I think that's where D'Angelo tried to throw off investigators by taking stuff like that. But I still think the fact that he stole this hammer showed that he was thinking about bludgeoning a victim. And clearly, if you have to leave that hammer behind, 
you don't want it linked to you. So I just think that he had been thinking about that for a while. And so when he loses, when he gets arrested and loses his job, I think he has, he feels like he has nothing left to lose. And that's why when he goes into Southern California, um, he starts killing his victims. I think that makes sense because clearly why would you, again, I mean, we know he stole things for most of his life. We, we, we've seen that. So he felt like he could probably get away with it. So he, he knows that there would be no link to him with him with that hammer if he has to leave it behind at a crime scene. Okay. Crazy question. I've, not assuming anybody here has, but I've never shoplifted, so I don't know what this is like. But I'm assuming that if someone's like, hey, sir, I think you're taking those items, you're shoplifting, couldn't he have gone, oh, my bad, let me pay for it? Or would they have still been like, no, sir, you know, we're going to call the cops for shoplifting? uh, As somebody who spent a lot of years working in a grocery store, I can tell you that we, you know, that happened often and people would just give the stuff back and we just let them go. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you you see someone trying to walk out with a a candy bar or a bottle of soda. It was usually and it was usually teens. You know, I mean, sometimes it was older folks. But to me, it says he must have gotten really belligerent or something must have really happened in that moment. He might have made a run for the door. Um, Yeah. Yeah. so then they don't have a choice but to... Yeah, I mean, the moment it escalates and you're wrestling a guy on the floor, you're right. calling the cops, right? Right. And the story goes that while they're wrestling, so he's kind of face down on the ground. He's got these two guys on top of him. He's taking this... The, he took the dog repellent out of his pants and just stuck it on a shelf because they were right next the, to a yeah. shelf. Yeah. So he's trying to get rid of the evidence while they're fighting. So... Yeah. Um, but it, so, I mean, to me, that says he must have panicked in the moment because yeah. it feels like if you're cool, calm and collected at that point, you you could get out of that. Out of it. You go, oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't realize that I had had those in my pockets. So I mean, you know, it's hard to believe, but I feel like as a st- store security is not to lose money. He could have flashed his badge and maybe got out of it. I mean, yeah, he but he panicked. I mean, he clearly did, because yeah. that's the last thing you want is a fight between you and two clerks and they're calling the cops and they have to tell you. I mean, that's you could have talked your way out of that much better. Yeah. And then it would have been forgotten about. Another theory frequently debated when it came to the case of the Golden State Killer was whether he was dead or alive. We'll revisit our initial beliefs and the evidence that led us to those early conclusions. And there are some questions that we have for suspect Joseph James D'Angelo if we ever get the opportunity to speak directly with him. We'll share those too. We talked a lot in our show about whether or not he was dead or alive. Biagio, what did you think? I always thought he was alive, as evidenced by the fact that at least once a week I would wake up and think he was in our house. Um, and I'm not saying that to be funny. I, I it was it was legitimately uh, it was legitimately frightening. The more we got into the case, to know that he was out there. Right. And uh, I was telling somebody the other day, you know, me and Joke live in a one story house. You know, right on the corner. On the corner, bedroom faces <laughs> the front yard. I mean, it was it matched up with a lot of things. Um, so I I was convinced he was alive to the point where I was. I figured that I would meet him at some If there was point. a canal behind your house, it would have been perfect. Would, would <laughs> or a park. Nice. Yeah, the green belt. Todd? I, I, I always thought he was alive, yeah. You'd have to go on the assumption that he's alive until proven dead. So, yeah, I always just assume that he must still be living. And we thought he was younger, mm-hmm. so he would only have been in his early 60s. So, yeah, I definitely thought he was alive and nearing retirement age. Yeah, I mean, I definitely thought he was alive. I think sometimes I told myself he's probably dead just to not freak out or panic. But yeah, there's something, you know, that 
once there was an arrest made in this case, and I think this is what I'm echoing, you know, Chris, victim 10, it just became a lot more real. And I was actually more frightened the night after the press conference when you and I were in Sacramento and I was alone in my hotel room, I had the doors locked and I don't know, it was just... It's just, you know, we're storytellers. And so I was able to compartmentalize most of it while we're going through this, mm-hmm. you know, and be like, OK, this is a story we're telling. And actually, I think, Todd, you made me feel better because early on we talked about, you know, what if this person is coming to get us because we're telling this story? And you said, well, that would be a big mistake on his part, at which point that'll help him get caught. So, yeah. <laughs> OK. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't want him to come after me. I, you know, if he sticks his head above water, we pretty much got him. So uh, if he tried anything like that, I think he realized he's his best chance was just to stay put and you know not say anything and stay not, hidden in the yeah. haystack. Yeah, yeah exactly, uh, hidden in plain sight. Uh, well, that brings us to um, some people in law enforcement thought that he was hiding in plain sight, and then. You know, a lot of people also thought maybe he was in jail in another state that just, you know, maybe didn't do DNA collection on felons yet. Mm-hmm. There was a, a lot of people push. thought he was in jail. A lot right. of people thought he was a, And I think that's a safe assumption. Um, I think when they track people down after maybe the murder's 10, 20 years old, a lot of times they find that they're in prison. It, they just solved a case uh, by DNA from a, a murder that occurred in the 80s. And they found out the guy had been executed in Texas in 2001. <laughs> and wow. so, you know, I, I think it, that's a understandable assumption. Again, I think D'Angelo is not the norm. And those kind of guys are kind of the scariest, right? Uh, a guy who's a lifelong criminal, you're going to catch up to him at some point or her. But a guy who's um, really kept off law enforcement's radar for all his life. Except for one little shoplifting thing. <laughs> that shoplifting debacle. Um, yeah, I mean, so that that guy's scarier, right? Because he's much harder to find. Yeah, which brings me to the following um, and the kind of last one, which was the theory of like why he stopped or did he stop? And I think even speaking with profilers, I believe it was Mary Ellen O'Toole on, on our podcast actually was like, you know, I, I think he might be dead because I don't know how you are this prolific looking at right. the Golden State Killers crime through, especially when you look at original Night Stalker and those murders that you're like, how do you how do you stop? And we know the FBI used to say these guys can't stop. Right. They'll keep going until they're uh, killed or caught. And I think they've amended that, you know, in the last 15, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, BTK kind of changed yeah, that. Yeah, Um Once once he was uh, identified, it was like, oh, OK, they can stop. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, it always came down to nothing identifies the ransacker, the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker more than the sense of self-preservation. Right. It was always kind of the the guiding light for this Golden State killer. I mean, to the point where in the East Area Rapist Crime Spree, he had someone tied up, ready to, you know, perform the sexual assault and was like, mm, something doesn't seem right and walk away. Right. I mean, when have you ever heard of that? That is unheard of. Uh, it's, again, one of the many things that made this case so unusual. And you're right. Every aspect of his M.O. is informed by his... Uh, need to preserve his identity, to to not be identified. So um, that really informs everything that he does, all his actions. 
and uh, to yeah, walk away. Yeah, it's the biggest away. urge he had, more it, so than sexual or terrorizing or anything else, was not get caught. And clearly it's an overwhelming urge because we just talked about how much time he spends, you know, uh, stalking and prowling. So he's just a, he's a different type of uh, serial killer. Um, I, I've never seen one that would walk away from that. It's highly unusual. And uh, I'd like to point out, you know, there was an attack in 87 that Larry Crompton talks about in his book. If you haven't read it, it's called Sudden Terror. It's a fantastic book. And Larry Crompton was a Contra Costa County investigator right. on the case during the East Area Rapist Crimes. He worked the case and then in retirement, he researched it and investigated for years and years. And he's the main reason why uh, I became interested in the case, because he was the first person I, I spoke to after reading about the case. He mentions an attack, and I think it's pronounced Rodeo. It's a small town in Northern California, spelled Rodeo, but I think it's pronounced Rodeo. It's actually where Green Day's from. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, there was an attack of a woman in her home in 87 where the suspect got in the window and she was bludgeoned in her bed with a piece of firewood. You know, what does that sound like? She actually lived. She wasn't sexually assaulted. And so I think that's why there was probably no DNA evidence, but that they never concretely connected that to the rest of the series. But, uh, you know, Crompton says, you know, we were always suspicious that could be him. And now that we know that he was living in the Sacramento area in Citrus Heights, it's not too far away. So uh, maybe that was his last one. And for whatever reason, maybe he was scared out of the house. I mean, we'll never know. But um, there's a possibility that that was actually his last attack. But uh, there's really no evidence besides the M.O. It, it just sounds like him, but um, there's nothing else to go on. So, And there could be other crimes that we haven't connected to him yet. Look, you know, what are Joseph James D'Angelo will ever talk? You know, he hasn't even entered a plea yet. He's just awaiting trial at this point. I do think that if it, you know, is proven that he is, in fact, a Golden State killer and he owns it and he finally speaks to it, the wealth of information that profilers could get from him. I mean, it would I believe it would rewrite profiling science. Oh, I, mean, I, I think it would. Definitely. Yeah. Even if he is an outlier, you know, now all of a sudden we have proof that these outliers exist. Exist. And so you have to look for them. So, yeah, exactly. They, I think they would. He would and, offer a wealth of information. And this investigative genetic genealogy has now really almost found more of him, because even the NorCal rapist who was caught in Sacramento, now granted, he, as far as I know, never went on to murdering, but there were several several rapes, and I think the last one was like 18 or 19 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so he, he also, quote unquote, quit, you know? So I think this idea that these serial rapists or serial murders, murderers can just stop and keep their urges in check is, I think you know, somewhat of a new thought, I guess, a new thought in the last maybe decade or so. Before I, I think maybe, right. Um, you pointed out correctly, really since BTK. So that was 2000, I believe, when he was arrested. So yeah, last, you know, 19 years or so, um, I think they've really adjusted their thoughts on that. And obviously, these guys can stop if they feel it's necessary for their survival. So, uh, you know, the, you mentioned the NorCal rapist. So I went to Sonoma State from 98 to 94, which is in Roanoke Park. And he, one of his first victims was in Roanoke Park. 
I think in 92 or three, um, while I was there. And I didn't even realize that I read that many years later. Yeah, well, at that point, he's probably just a rapist, right? It, like, if it's one of his first right. attacks, they, they haven't, like, coined him or they haven't figured out a whole... Exactly. And also DNA wouldn't have connected them yet, right. obviously, at that point. Yeah. So, And that was a very safe town. So, uh, you know, you never know where these people can attack. And uh, a, that was a little scary. It was a little close to home when I read that. I mean, mm-hmm. it was years later, but I was like, oh, man. Well, speaking of years, uh, you know, it has been quite a journey for you and us on this project, for you over 10 years, for us coming up on four years. Mm-hmm. In this journey, in this process, what's what are you going to take away from all this? Wow, that's a good question. Um, you definitely uh, have a sense of accomplishment, just, uh, you know, learning about this case and doing what we can do, which is publicize it and and get his, get all the facts out for the public and hoping that had a little bit of effect on the eventual solving of the case. You know, you'd like to say, well, you know, we lit a fire under law enforcement, but that really wasn't the case because we know there were several detectives and investigators who were really, they were in this for a lifetime. They were, they were in it. They were <laughs> in it. And, you know, I kind of describe it as we were the cheerleaders. Like, right. The football game was going to happen no matter what. Right. But we were on the sidelines cheering and, you know, getting the audience involved and the stadium excited. And, right. And, you know, and it just gives them that extra little, like, you know, when they have a, a suspect that comes back, you know, cleared by DNA and you're like, ugh, this again. Right. You know, I think maybe us standing on the sidelines going, you can do it. <laughs> and know? we were very hopeful that maybe somebody would see the show and call in, right. not realizing the info they had would be important to solving this case. Right. And so it, it didn't turn out that way. But I think cases like this that are unsolved and have been unsolved for decades, I think that can be a, a very useful tool. And you should attack a case like this from all sides. And that's what law enforcement did. And that's what we did. Uh, we did our part, what we could do. And um Somebody hit a home run. Got named Paul Holes. Yeah, <laughs> he did swinging a hit. Yeah, finally after so many years, and you know, again, and we've discussed this, but uh, you know, guys like Larry Poole and Larry Montgomery and Erica Hutchcraft down in Orange County worked this case for years and years, and worked really hard and tried all different angles to try to identify this guy. And then, of course, you have uh, Shelby and Carol Daly and Ken Clark up in Sacramento, among others who worked uh, the case, never forgot the case, even after retirement. Ken Clark is not retired, and he's worked the case for 20 years and has gone down to Visalia. I mean, he tried all different angles. Yeah, and, James Cummings in Visalia uh, was working it. James Cummings, who's who's young, but was really gung-ho and positive about solving this case from the very first day I met him. And so I was like, oh, you know, it made me feel good, like, okay, they got the right people in the right spots. If it's going to be solved, these guys will do it. And look, the task force worked, right? I mean, they all were communicating. They all took their own avenues. So not everybody all over the state was pursuing the same right. direction. And, you know, one of them works. Exactly. So and I, I never hope, knew where it was coming from. I hope they take that example and use it for other cases. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it can only help. Um, as you know, we have other cases that are unsolved and that date back to the 70s and 80s. So it'd be nice that they, uh, they've they had so much success catching this guy that uh, hopefully they'll use it for other cases. And I and I think they will. Okay. Worst day and best day on the project? You know, I, we had a lot of best days. I loved our time in Exeter. 
Uh, I loved when we went to Visalia the first time. And uh, I loved when you and I sat down with Carol Daly and Richard Shelby at the very beginning. 2016, yeah. And, you know, and that was great. I can't think of really a a worst day. I I can't, you know, nothing really stands out. Uh, We had tiring days. Yes. Exhausting days. Exhausting days. Oh, oh, I can tell you my worst day. When I got... uh, the food poisoning in uh, wasn't that was that in Pleasanton Contra Costa yeah, yeah in, in Contra Costa County uh, oh man and we had a a follow up interview to do with Richard Shelby that day and uh, man I, I, it wasn't just that after that follow up interview everybody drove down to Fresno to Fresno to interview um, Katie Majori's brother Ken Ken Smith correct. And so, yeah, that was probably the worst day. Yeah. (laughs) How about you, Joe? What was your best day and your worst day? I would say best day was the day of the press conference, hands down. That was pretty great. I mean, it was so emotional. Um, Also, I hadn't slept, so that's probably why it was even more emotional. But just to see Carol Daly and Paul Holes and, um, you know, some of the victims that we saw that day, it was just like unbelievable. And and I'm with Todd. I don't. I didn't really have worse days on this project. It was kind of you didn't, uh, you didn't get food poisoning. I did the road. not get food poisoning. It was yeah. a it was pretty terrific top to bottom. I think that we had a great team. You know, it way did. more people than just the three of us made this project happen. It was an amazing team. And I think for me, my my best moment on this project, and I want to preface this by saying it's so rare to get to do a project where, uh, you know, there's so many reasons to do it. We had so many people who wanted to tell their stories genuinely, who genuinely wanted to see him caught. And uh, at the day of the press conference, they have Sacramento District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert actually quote our show, I know. you know, in the press conference where they <laughs> caught him. I mean, it it was yeah. on one hand, yes, it's great for the ego and whatever. But but for me, it just said, wow, we made a project that the people, you know, the people who we really wanted to make this project for, they appreciated it. Right. And they got something out of it. Right. And that made me very happy. Right. Yeah. Uh, that was pretty big. That was pretty amazing. It was kind of crazy. And you're right. That day was amazing. Uh, Bruce Harrington. Yep, another Bruce guy whose hand I shook and, and you know, it, it's weird because people might think, oh, it's so, you know, it, it was a horrible, awful crime spree and people might think, oh, well, why are you so happy? You know, it's a sense of relief, I think, for all the victims and their families that they finally can see that they will get justice in this case. Uh, so I was very happy for them. And and, you know, the fact that they had to think outside the box and come up with a new investigative technique that worked and now is working for dozens and dozens of cases, not just cold cases, but now they're identifying unidentified bodies that have, you know, been unidentified for 30, 40, 50 years. That's amazing. You know, so we're really seeing an amazing time that all came out of the hunt for the Golden State Killer. So it continues to have an effect on criminal justice, which is pretty amazing, you know, if you think about it. Can you think of another case that really had this much impact? Especially in California, I can't really think of one. I mean, I mean, just the way it just raised law enforcement's game across the board. Big just... time, yeah. yeah. I would say, no, I can't, and I'm only saying that because all the law enforcement officials we've talked to can't either. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. You I'll know. point to this. The impact has been immense, yeah. So, and we probably won't see another case like that in our lifetime, uh, which is good. But it, it it's going to be fantastic to see some of these really old cold cases finally solved. And I think uh, we're just going to see more and more. 
And so maybe we'll, we'll clear all the books, at least in California. Can you imagine? I'm sure there'll be a few that they won't be able to figure it out. But uh, it, just the fact that you can bring justice to these families, uh, I think, is just an amazing feeling. So it was, it was a very uh, emotional day and a very um, just a lot of relief, I think. That's what I felt. Which interview uh, will stick with you the longest? Several of them were pretty impactful. Uh, the... One we just did with um, victim number ten. Victim Chris. number ten. It was pretty emotional, and yeah, that one it had a big impact on me. Right when we were shooting it, and then watching it back, you know, it still had that impact. But I, I could probably point to several of the interviews that were pretty impactful. I mean, when we the first time we interviewed the Harrington brothers, that was that was yeah, you know, and I, I just respect those guys so much. So that was. That was a big day, too. So, um, but yeah, well, I'll, I'll go with Chris. Biagio? I, it's, I mean, it's hard not to go with Chris. That was the first thing I thought of when the question came up. I will say, as far as an interview that really stuck with me in a different way, it was Larry Crompton. Mm-hmm. Because here was a guy who is not young. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and wanted more than anything to see this case solved. And and worst of all, felt like he had let people down, which of course he hadn't. But he's like, I feel I didn't solve this case, therefore I let people down. And right. it was it was so heartbreaking, it, but at the same time it made you just root for him so much and hope that in his lifetime he would see justice. Of course, I didn't really think that would happen. Right. And so it's amazing that people like Larry Crompton, all, all the Larrys involved with the case, Larry Poole, Larry Montgomery, it's amazing that these people are finally getting to see this. Yeah. So I, I think for me, that that interview just always really touched me because here was a guy who, who felt like he let people down and just couldn't let the case go. And like you pointed out, which he didn't. And that's the kind of guy you want as a detective, a guy who really is invested in each case and... You know, when he doesn't catch a suspect, he, you know, he feels uh, that um, he needs to work harder. You know, I, I don't feel like anybody feels like he, any of the investigators let let the victims down. They worked, you know, they did everything they possibly could. But you're you're right. It, it's really nice to see that for Larry Crompton, um, that he got to see this, you know. It is. Yeah. So joke. Well, what was yours? Well, you know, maybe it's because, you know, it was one of our most recent ones, but Chris, you know, rocked my world. I mean, and I don't mean that in any kind of like rock and roll type of way. <laughs> I, I I just, she had answers that I couldn't have imagined. I couldn't have written. Um, and I think that's why we love documentary and unscripted television is when things surprise you. And her story and her journey just really surprised me. I think, you know, looking back on the whole thing, You know, D.A. Schubert just, she instilled in me this quiet confidence that they were going to do it. She had just had this determination. And Mm -hmm. I remember being in that very first interview with her and she said persistence is what's going to solve this case. And I remember thinking right then and there, that's the last line of the show. And I don't know, there was just something really powerful about how she was leading her team I think Paul Holes hooking up with them, you know, it was just a perfect combo of of a great team working together. And, um, you know, it's just nice to see, you know, and and to meet law enforcement and to, to get to know them on a personal level and just see that as individuals, as people, they are so determined to find justice for their constituents and for the victims. And, yeah, I'll never forget that moment. Yeah, she's 
fantastic. We we thought, you know, she earned our respect. I can say that definitely. Okay, so we asked a lot of the survivors and uh, victims of this, so, but I'm going to ask you, Todd, if you could talk to Joseph D'Angelo, what do you have to say? What do you want to ask him? <laughs> well, obviously, I'd like to ask him, did we find everything? Are there other crimes that we haven't connected to you? But, you know, I think uh, a question that a lot of people would ask would be, why? And I don't know if he could even answer that. Um, I guess that's the thing for me. It's hard for me to understand that behavior. And so I would want him to try to explain the origins of that. You know, where did it come from? Where did your anger originate from? And, and, you know, as you get older... (laughs) You you tend to calm down a little bit more, you know, um, especially for men. I think when you're a young man, you know, you're getting in trouble, you got a temper, that kind of thing. And as you get older, you get wiser and you get a little more calmer. The guy's still angry. He's 70 something years old. He still seems very angry. So that's something like, you know, deep seated in him. Uh, and so I would just be curious to where that came from and you know, why it manifested itself in these types of crimes. And again, I don't know if you could answer that, but uh, I would be interested to find out more about his childhood and growing up and to see, you know, if we could figure out, you know, was he made this way or was he born this way? Because I think we've discovered, you know, a guy like Ted Bundy seemed to have been born that way, uh, had a great upbringing where did that come from, that, that type of behavior come from? And then others we know they had horrible childhoods, you know, were practically tortured as kids. And you can make a serial killer that way, you know, if if that kid has certain tools and then you are torturing him the whole time. We've seen serial killers, you know, come out of that type of childhood. So I'd just be curious to see you know, where that type of behavior came from for him. And what are you most interested in now looking forward to this next phase, the trial? You know, the story isn't over yet. Mm-hmm. This chapter kind of is. But like now next chapter, what are you looking forward to? What are you most interested in? Well, it'd be nice to know, you know, what his actions were in the 80s. Uh, we know he was down in Whittier, but I'd like to know a lot more about what he was doing for a living and what his movements were and, and what his wife knew, if anything. Uh, it'd be interesting to hear from her. And so, you know, uh, maybe she could fill in some of those holes. Yeah. So I guess maybe uh, just to fill in the holes of the story. Um, and there are plenty of them still. So it'd be nice to just find out about his uh, life in Southern California in the 80s. Yeah. And the trial might take a while before we would get to that. And then obviously, if should D'Angelo pass before, you know, the trial starts, do you think law enforcement will tell us what they know or do you or do we feel like that's going to be the end of it? Oh, no, no, no. I think they'd come out with the info. I mean, it wouldn't make a difference anymore. And they've done that with other cases where they finally identified somebody through DNA. Turns out he's been dead and they'll release. Well, this is why we think he yeah. was the guy behind this cold case murder. Uh, his DNA matched. Uh, it was found on the victim. Um, and they usually will come out with... Um, you know, and they they figure these things out sometimes decades and decades later. I was just reading about another one. Uh, one of the oldest cases, um, a Harvard student was murdered in her apartment in the 60s. And they've just identified the suspect. Of course, he's been dead for years. Right. But, um, you know, and I think that's going to happen as more states 
get on board with a DNA database and and testing all the inmates and testing uh, people who have been arrested for uh, felonies, I, I think we'll find uh, we'll be uh, bringing justice to families who have not had it for decades. And, and so that'll be interesting to see. Todd, thanks for trusting us with this story. <laughs> thanks for being here every step of the way. Thanks for the spirited debates. But most importantly, thanks for caring, caring for the survivors, caring for law enforcement and caring that we tell the story right. Couldn't imagine a better partner to do it with. And I mean that truly. I, and I agree. Thank you so much for finally reading my one sheet. <laughs> In our defense, it was like a 20 sheet. <laughs> it was like a 20 sheet. It sat on my desk it's for a long time. A sheet, right. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, you guys, it, it, again, you guys were fantastic to work with and you brought something you brought a lot of things to the table that I never would have. And it it really wouldn't have been near as good a show, uh, a documentary, and as inclusive and as informative if you guys weren't involved. It's been a great experience. I mean, we had an amazing 2018, didn't we? Yeah, we did. <laughs> so let's do it again. Yes. Best bosses I've ever had. <laughs> well, listen, Partners man, on I, this one, man. I, I know Partners. we couldn't have done it without you. We couldn't have done it. And I know we've kind of already touched on this, Todd, but I just want to say it again. You know, it was your dedication to this case for over a decade and, and your genuine compassion for the survivors and the families of the victims and your, your real connections you built with them. It's why people trusted you to tell their story to us. Uh, so I just, I just can't commend you enough for being someone who's not just in it for the, the TV-ness of it. You were in this because you cared about these I people. I wanted to see it solved. Yes, yeah, exactly. you really did. I do. You know, I either love a mystery or I hate a mystery. I can't figure it out because I'm like, no, I need to know. <laughs> don't you start happened? every book at the last page or something? I, I don't. Oh, but okay. uh, I, yeah, when you get like a third way through, you're like, God, I just want to go to the end now and find out. <laughs> yeah. But you can't do that with an unsolved case. So we, we got to figure it out ourselves or, or try to help the public, you know, come forward with info that can solve something. So, I mean, that's that's what we can do as that's producers. All do, and that's yeah. all we can do. So, um, but yeah, I, I have to know the end for everything. So. And now you know. And now I know. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm good for, for a few months. And now there's a couple others that I want to know the end to also. Well, well, thanks again. Thanks, guys. Joseph James D'Angelo's next scheduled court appearance is August 22nd, and if there's a significant development at that time, we'll definitely return with new podcast episodes. For now, though, we want to thank everyone who shared their time, knowledge, and personal experiences regarding this historic case during this limited series run. Thank you for taking this journey with us. Now, in addition to keeping you up to date with the Golden State Killer case, we hope to return soon with new investigations into other cold cases. In the meantime, you can catch up on the Golden State Killer case with the complete Unmasking a Killer documentary series available on demand at CNN Go. And listen to the Unmasking a Killer podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Biagio Messina. And I'm Joke Vincian. Thanks for listening.